Navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Today is gonna be a great program. I'm so excited that you scheduled this in your calendar uh, to uh, join in on talking about expert depositions. One of my favorite things um, in litigating personal injury cases is working with experts in all aspects in general, uh, but there's nothing more intellectually stimulating, challenging, just interesting, fun, uh, than taking the deposition of an expert when you've prepared properly and executed it properly. It's just, it's a, it, it makes you feel really good to be a lawyer and, uh, and um, I'm happy to talk about it today. So, you know, it was funny, I got a Dennis uh, Carrion, who's a member of, of the, the group of all of us uh, who participates in a lot of these CLEs. Uh, he reached out to me, he's like, did I miss something? Are expert depositions happening in, in state court now? Uh, no, Dennis, you didn't miss anything. Uh, still in New York State, uh, we it is very rare to do a deposition of an expert. You have to seek leave from a court to do so. Uh, however, federal court, it is commonplace. Uh, there's always in the scheduling order in federal court, uh, time to exchange expert reports, a deadline to conduct expert depositions. So if you ever find yourself in federal court, you're going to want to be ready and prepared to uh, handle expert depositions. Also, many other states outside of New York have expert discovery. I'm handling a matter right now in Connecticut and in Connecticut State Court, I think they call it Superior Court, uh, the, uh, the experts are questioned as part of the litigation process. So even if you don't think that you're going to be questioning many experts as part of your uh, practice, uh, the strategies that I plan on discussing with you today uh, can apply for when you're preparing for cross-examination at trial. Uh, if you handle any medical malpractice or product liability cases, uh, you're always going to be dealing with experts in those. So uh, in medical malpractice, it's going to be expert physicians you're going to have to question. So you know, I think that there's a lot to learn uh, in this area, and I think there's a lot of tips uh, that I'm excited to share with you that maybe you, you haven't availed yourself of. As I always say in my CLE, in any CLEs when I attend them, if you just pick up a couple things, you know, that, that help out, then it's worth it, right? If it, if it, you know, makes a difference in your case. And I think uh, you're going to find some things today that are going to make a difference in some cases that you have. Well, that's my hope. So let's get into it. You know, preparing uh, for a deposition of an expert is very different than preparing for a deposition of a lay witness. So if you handle mostly auto accident cases in New York State, um, you're probably not questioning an expert. You're questioning a driver of a car, a motorcycle, a bus, a truck. And a lay person is different than an expert in that they're they're just, you know, they, they don't know their way around a courthouse. They're not used to being questioned. They're going to be much more nervous. They're probably not going to fight you as hard. An expert, uh, on the other hand, is someone who's paid knowing that they're going to be questioned by a lawyer, either at a deposition or at trial. They come into it knowing that. One of the things I like to do when I try cases and I'm cross-examining an expert uh, witness uh, that my adversary calls 
and I start talking about all their prior testimony and all the money they make testifying and all of that. And they do it all for defense because uh, I'm on the plaintiff side. And, uh, you know, I say, you probably spent more time in a courtroom than I have. And I'm actually a trial lawyer and you're not. So you really need to be prepared because when you're questioning an expert witness, they're going to be adversarial. Uh, you're going to be challenging them on their opinions uh, in the case. They're going to want to back it up. They're not going to give you easy answers. They're not going to concede things easily. Experts will be defensive. They'll think they know more than you do, uh, which they may in general, but they may not on a specific area that you're going to question them on. And we'll talk about that. Just because someone's a toxicologist, you may have a subject matter in your case that you know better than they do. You've read more. Maybe they'd focus in another area. Just because someone's a, a physician, um, their area of practice may not be in the specific issue that you've studied so hard that you're going to question them. So they will know how to answer tough questions. They'll know how to sort of bob and weave and be evasive. Um, you know, it's, it's very challenging. And the way that you can have success is by preparation. If you've listened to any of my CLEs, you know my mantra, preparation, preparation, preparation. And never is it more important, uh, you know, it's important in everything we do as trial attorneys at every phase. But when you're preparing to question an expert in a subject matter, um, you need to be prepared, okay? And this is, preparation is probably 95 to 99% of conducting a successful deposition of an expert witness. It's all the advanced work that you're doing, not as much how you ask a question. And today we're going to talk probably 95% of the time on preparation. And then with the remaining time, we're gonna talk about the actual conducting it, whether you're defending an expert or whether you're questioning an expert. And what I like to do, many of you know, is save the uh, Q&A until after the two o'clock hour. So from two to 2.30, uh, I'll try and get through every single person's questions. So please go ahead, drop all your questions in the Q&A. If someone else thinks they have a comment or an answer to question posted, drop it in there too. Uh, I love the community that we've been building through these series and uh, helping each other out. I don't profess to know everything by any means. I just share what I know and hope that it'll help you a little bit, okay? So sometimes you'll get a disclosure. Uh, and in federal court, you're gonna get an expert report. You're gonna get the report where they spell out what they reviewed. Um, the, uh, you're gonna get uh, the file that they have. Uh, you're gonna see what they relied upon in forming their opinions, all of these things. And it's important that that as a first step that you read through it, because sometimes first read of an expert's report or disclosure, in New York, we have 3101 D1 disclosures where the lawyer types up the subject matter and what they expect the expert to say. And a lot of times it'll come in and the report reads really strong and you're like, uh oh, this person looks like they're going to really hurt us. They're saying this, they're saying that. And then when you get into the deposition and you start doing your homework and your preparation, you realize, wait a second, this is nonsense. They're saying in their report. I'm totally going to, you know, take them out at the knees when I confront them with the references and the things that I've learned to prepare for it. So one example I just want to share with that is I'm currently involved in a case uh, where my client is paralyzed and we had him evaluated by a vocational expert uh, amongst other experts to talk about his inability to obtain work uh, due to his being paralyzed. And the defense disclosed their expert vocational 
uh, expert. And her report read really great. It said that he can get a job doing this. He can do that. All the things that she opines he can do and disagreeing with my uh, expert. And then when I questioned her, she was a, she was basically a novice. And she, you could tell she didn't have much experience. I asked her if she's ever evaluated a paralyzed person before. She said no. I said, can you identify one job that my paralyzed client can get right now? No. Um, so, you know, when you prepare and you're not afraid to challenge the expert because you have a high level of preparation, that's when you're going to be able to speak to your adversary and say, yeah, their report's nothing. I'm not concerned about them at trial. They couldn't answer these questions. So that's one of the things you want to accomplish when you question an expert. I like to think of it as a boxing analogy. Think of it that you're going to enter a boxing ring and that's going to be the deposition and in one corner your adversary is the expert that's who you're going to be fighting in the boxing match it's the adverse expert and would you show up to a boxing match uh where the expert is a seasoned boxer boxes people all the time you know figures no problem smiley's new to this i can take him out i'm questioned more than he probably questions people this is my wheelhouse i'm going to be good I'm, I'm going to take him out and if you show up and all you've done is maybe prepare a day in advance and you're not fit you're not ready for the fight you get in there you're going to get your butt kicked but what if you start preparing a few weeks earlier or a few months earlier you start reaching re researching this expert seeing the weaknesses seeing prior fights this experts had reading prior uh, opinions uh, precluding that expert finding out weaknesses and areas that you can attack and bob and weave then you show up and the expert's going to be overly confident hey i can take smiley i do this all the time but then you show up you've been training you've been prepared you've been watching the videos and you kick his butt and that's what you want to do and the way that you do that is to do your homework and to prepare and leave yourself time you never want to prepare for an expert deposition you know, a day before, even two days before. As you'll see, what we're gonna go through takes time. So when you know it's coming down the pike, the minute you get a disclosure, the minute you get a report of an adverse expert, get to preparing, because that deposition is gonna get scheduled and you're gonna wanna be able to take him or her down, all right? Now, the very first thing I like to do is really go through the report that I receive from that expert or the disclosure that I receive. I'll read through it. I'll make notes on it, I'll make highlights. You know, we all use computers now, which is just great. Um, and in depositions, I've been doing all my depositions by Zoom, just like this. And I'll pull up the PDF version of the expert's report or disclosure. I'll highlight things. I'll do those little comment bubbles and annotate. Just break it down, read everything. You're gonna to wanna to focus on what records were reviewed. Did this expert review everything? Are there key documents that this expert failed to list that were reviewed? Anything missing? Did they read all the transcripts? Did they read all the medical records? Do they cite to everything? Perhaps they missed some key documents. So you're going to want to look at what they did as far as the record review that's always listed. Um, was an inspection performed? Maybe it's a, a car uh, expert, uh, an engineer, a motoring engineer, um, maybe an accident reconstructionist. You're going to know, did they perform an inspection? When did they do it? Did they actually go in person? Did they uh, just look at photographs? There's a lot of case law out there. And ultimately, you're going to build up this case to maybe get the expert precluded from even testifying if you can establish that all he or she did was look at photos. And that's not sufficient under the law to opine on the issues this expert opined. 
So look through the conclusions, the opinions, see what the opinions are, because experts are going to be locked into the opinions contained in the disclosure or the report. If the opinion's not in there, then they can't bring that up at trial. So zero in on the language of the opinions of their conclusions. Does it hurt you? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe they go through this whole summary and in their final opinion, it doesn't really say anything that you care about that doesn't hurt uh, your case. What if they opine on something that's out of their wheelhouse? Maybe you have a, an engineer who starts talking about medical causation. Well, an engineer is not a medical doctor unless they went to medical school. So look and see if maybe their opinions are out of their area of expertise, but really take time to read through, um, see if anything helps you. Sometimes they'll put something in there that'll, you know, think of a typical uh, doctor doing an independent medical evaluation for an adversary. Um, maybe they put in a thing on causation. Uh, maybe they say that the injuries are permanent. Maybe they give a strong report that helps you. And then you just want to spend the time in the deposition preparing to bolster that because it's helpful to you. Maybe they failed to say something. I had a case um, that I've talked about uh, in this CLE. Uh, where our client was evaluated by an orthopedist. And you'll see, uh, I attached that in the materials. I've attached the materials today. I have two transcripts from the same case. Our client was rear-ended by a, a tractor trailer and had back injuries. And you'll see there's a deposition. I conducted both of them. One is of an orthopedic surgeon who evaluated my client. And the other is of a vocational person who evaluated my client. And I suggest if you have time to read them because you'll see what I'm talking about. You'll see how you can use them to help your case. And I noticed in reviewing the orthopedic surgeon's report that was disclosed that he didn't really dispute causation. And so I started asking him, I'm like, I don't see any dispute. Well, that's not my place to talk about that. I'm just looking at limitations. I'm like, okay, but to be clear, you're not disputing that this accident caused his injuries, are you? Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to talk about that. I haven't reviewed everything to determine causation or not. I'm like, so as you sit here today, just to be clear, it's not your opinion that this isn't causally related. We'll talk about how you have to, have to fight the experts sometimes because they're gonna be evasive like that, but you can get good stuff, all right? When you're looking at the report, look for references. They're either gonna be like a footnote where they cite to an article or a journal or a study or a treatise, uh, or they may attach a, a list of references on the back of the report. Um, then get them, get those references uh, and read them all. You'll be surprised. We're going to talk about that in a moment of how that can help you uh, because sometimes they reference something to support something they're saying. And then when you actually read the reference, it doesn't say that at all. So you have to look at that. And if they don't have references, then they're just speculating. Are we supposed to take your word for it just because you say you're an expert and you're saying all this stuff? Where's the science behind it? Where's the studies behind it? You know, what's the basis for your opinions here? All right, so you're gonna to wanna to look at the references. Now, um, I have a, recently, I questioned a toxicologist, expert for the defense. And the issue in my case was regarding whether or not my client used cannabis, marijuana, and whether or not that had any impact on the case. So one of the things that this toxicologist said is that um, when you smoke marijuana or cannabis, it's gonna increase risk-taking. And obviously he's implying that my client was being risky and that was a cause of the accident. He says that in so many words and then he footnotes an article, you know, risk-taking in cannabis, something like that. So I get the article and I read through it and it turns out 
this article was from like 20 years ago. It was 10 people in this study and they had 10 people sit down in front of a computer. They gave them each a joint. They had them all smoke a specific regimen of how many puffs, how many, how long they hold it, how long they exhale it. And then popped up on the computer screen, they were given $6 on the screen. And then they basically had to decide, do they want to just play it safe and maybe make, you know, a small percentage increase on it? Or do they want to, that's option A, or do they want to do option B, where they could get greater gains and maybe double their money, but they could also lose their money. And sure enough, the ones that got high from smoking the joint on the computer were more likely than not to choose the risky option. What that had to do with the facts of my case, which had was a sporting activity, had nothing to do with that. And so I lock him in on his deposition. That's the sole basis you have for saying this causes risk-taking, this study? Yeah, yeah. So you have to read these things uh, because half the time the experts don't even read them. They just have the title. Maybe they've used it in another case. So get the references, read the references. Don't be afraid to challenge an expert. That's your job. Um, don't be intimidated that this person has expertise in an area that you don't. Um, because you can learn it. You'll learn You'll learn the information specific to your case. What's the best way to handle a bully? We all know that. You go punch him in the face, right? So that's what you're doing in that boxing match. You're going to get in there. You're going to punch that expert in the face figuratively because you're going to be more prepared. You're going to take it to that expert. Then you want to look at the curriculum vitae. A curriculum vitae uh, is a resume of an expert. And on the curriculum vitae, it'll show they have board certifications. It'll list their education uh, any academic appointments, hospital affiliations, if they're a physician. It'll list their presentations, publications. So you're going to want to take a good look at the curriculum vitae. <coughs> Excuse me. You're going to want to see how much of an expert is this person? Is this expert from a college you've never heard of in the Midwest that somehow they got to say this stuff uh, that hasn't published anything, that hasn't lectured on anything? Or is this expert from an Ivy League school undergrad, an Ivy League graduate school with a PhD in that area, published a lot of studies on that, written a lot of articles. You're gonna to wanna to know not all experts uh, have the same qualifications, okay? Getting back to the toxicologist I was talking about that who I questioned recently, he was a toxicologist, but just because you're a toxicologist doesn't mean you're an expert in how cannabis affects people. And when I pressed on this expert and I looked at his CV, he hadn't published anything, not to mention publishing it on the effects of cannabis, hadn't presented anything, no academic appointments. Uh, basically, he said all he knows is from reading other articles, the same articles that I read that don't make sense. <laughs> so, you know, one of the goals ultimately uh, when you are questioning an expert is perhaps to get them precluded. In federal court, it falls under Rule 702 and a case called Daubert you may have heard of. In state court, uh, it's the equivalent of Daubert, it's called Fry. And in essence, experts can only testify if it's a matter outside the general knowledge of a lay, per of a lay person, of a juror. And they have to have a foundation for what they say. They have to have a, a legitimate basis. They can't just say, I'm a toxicologist and this is what I say and I'm an expert. If it's nonsense and they're speculating, you can get them precluded from coming to trial. Um, in a serious auto accident case, this will often be a situation with a biomechanical engineer. Uh, many of you have seen that, where it's a soft impact, right, between two cars, and you're handling it as the plaintiff, and your client had fusion surgery from being rear-ended, 
in the defense hires a biomechanical engineer who says, are you kidding me? This was a love tap on the back. There's no way the force was enough to cause these injuries. Well, I tell you what, they can't say that unless they have a medical degree or medical training. There are some biomechanical engineers who have medical training uh, and they can say that. But if they haven't, biomechanical engineers are engineers. They don't treat medical conditions. They can't opine on causation. And you could make a motion in Lemonade to preclude these biomechanical engineers. So if you see those appear in a case uh, that you're handling, you're going to want to get that information. You're going to want to move to preclude. Sometimes you could do it even just on a report. All right. So check out the curriculum vitae. See, is this an active person engaged in the, in the specific area in your case? Is it an engineer who you find out ultimately handles mostly like slip and fall and trip and fall cases, but here they're reconstructing the automobile accident and it turns out they've never done that before. Um, they're not going to do too well. You're either going to get them precluded or make them look really silly in front of a jury. Right? If you are joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code is POD115. That's POD115. And during this break, I saw some questions, really good questions. I still have a lot more to go through. I'm going to have to pick up the pace actually a little bit, and we'll address all those questions at two o'clock. So please stay with me from two to two thirty. That's sort of where the real action happens. Research the expert. And what I mean by that is research the expert every way possible. And I'm going to give you some suggestions. Always, always, always Google the expert. Type in their name, type in the expertise area, see what comes up. I, I mentioned in a prior case I had where it was a different toxicologist on an intoxication in a subway accident case I had, and I Googled the expert during trial because there really wasn't, it was state court, there wasn't a report, and I found out that he got uh, charges brought up against him by the New York State Attorney General and had to give up his lab and go to Florida for like 10 years, and he was flying in from Florida for our case. Boy, did the fireworks kick in when I brought that out during cross-examination. So. Google your experts. You may find nothing. You may find a, a gem. So always do that. Look for prior cases. There are ways you can search on Westlaw and Lexis. Um, I actually find Lexis has a they have um, a program called Context where you can search experts and you type in their name and it can give you like briefs, CVs, other places they've testified. So look, look, look on the case research. Google them see what other cases they've been in, see if they've been similar subject matter to yours. Like I said, maybe all they do is trip and falls and you see that in all the cases and here they're really out of their wheelhouse with accident reconstruction. See, maybe they've been previously challenged under Daubert or Fry. Um, one of the Academy sponsors, the Expert Institute can do those searches for you if you uh, work with them and they can find out. And you wanna do this when you're looking to retain your own expert, either as a plaintiff or a defendant. You know, why in the world would you want to bring an expert in when there's so many you can choose from if they've been precluded in a case? It's just, you know, why create trouble for yourself? So take a look. Have they been challenged? Have they been challenged for doing the same exact thing that they're doing in your case? I have a case like that right now, the biomechanical engineer. I spent months preparing for the deposition. I found seven cases this engineer was previously precluded in and one for creating a computer model, the same exact thing he's doing in, in my current case. So you can be certain that in a motion to preclude, I'm going to be highlighting that. Don't kid yourself. If a judge sees that uh, another judge has already precluded this expert for doing the same thing, that's good stuff. It, it doesn't control. It doesn't mean they're automatically precluded, but it helps. So you're going to want to look in that. Uh, many of us know about the New York jury verdict reporter. 
uh, it's an ALM product and you can do an expert search. So you call up, you ask them to do an expert search, give them the expert's name, you'll get emailed to you a packet of all the cases the experts testified in. You'll see if it was for the plaintiff, for the defense, you might see this expert is on the winning side all the time, maybe good expert or maybe on the losing side. It's information. You'll see if this expert works mostly with plaintiff or defense. When I retain experts, I generally like to use experts that do equal. They do defense and plaintiff. I want a credible expert. Um, if you're on the defense side or insurance side and you keep hiring these same defense experts over and over and over again that are mills, it's not doing you any favors. I've talked about this before. You have to find legitimate experts because otherwise, just because they're going to come in and say, oh, there's nothing wrong with the plaintiff and you think that that helps you. Ultimately, when you go to trial and they're exposed to be, you know, 99% defense and they review a thousand cases a year for the last 30 years for the defense and they never find anything wrong, that's not going to be credible to a jury. They're going to roll their eyes. Get credible experts. And um, you want to look, you want to see if the expert you're going to be questioning. Maybe they're a legitimate expert. Maybe they're brought in. Maybe your client suffered uh, an eye injury in the catastrophic automobile accident and they, their vision is almost blind. And the expert that the defense hires is a real top-notch eye surgeon who maybe doesn't testify all the time. Uh, that I'm gonna, if that's my case, I'm gonna put a lot more credibility and be more concerned about that expert and ramp up my level of preparation as opposed to someone that I find is, you know, was the bottom of their class at a, a foreign medical school who all they do is defense work and they don't have anything, any specialized knowledge in the eye, okay? Look at social media. Uh, I found stuff on social media because the search engines are so tied in now with Facebook and Instagram. If you search for an expert on social media, you'd be amazed at some of the stuff you come up with. You just don't know, and it can be helpful. Maybe it's not, but look, look. Get prior reports, prior transcripts. You can do this on Lexis. I think there's a way on Westlaw. If you go on the jury verdict reporter and you see this experts testified in prior cases uh, adverse to your side, so if you're a defense lawyer and you see this Experts always don't work for the plaintiffs, and uh, you can call up one of the defense lawyers in the cases you found in the jury verdict reporter. Say, hey, do you have a report? I want to see if he said the same thing. Do you have a transcript? And on the plaintiff side, we do that all the time. Um, it's not uncommon that I'll get, you know, five, six, seven transcripts on an expert, and I will review them all. I'll read them all. I'll digest them all uh, to find out if this witness has said something that actually contradicts what is said in the report, or maybe it's helpful if they've given prior testimony about something to my case. So you wanna get as much information. That's why you have to start early. I find many lawyers are really uh, happy to help, happy to help each other out with transcripts. I do it all the time. People reach out to me, I reach out to others. I have my colleagues that are really good about keeping the databases of transcripts that I reach out to. We all should help each other. Uh, that's what we do. So look for that, all right? Make sure you demand the expert's file on the case. Um, you are allowed to do this. In federal court, you serve a notice. Uh, if it's state court, you can do a subpoena, but you are entitled to all non-privileged information in that expert's file, and you wanna get it and fight for it before the deposition. You wanna see what's in there. You might find some gems in there. Uh, you wanna see, is this person an expert who came in? Did they take measurements at their inspection? Are there photos in the file? Um, are there notes? that they wrote things on. You wanna look for all this. Don't just assume you, you can't get it. You can get it as long as it's not privilege. So push for all of that. Invoices, invoices are a bounty of information. 
They can be at least. Many times these experts will itemize their invoices to the lawyers and you're allowed to get these invoices. It'll say, you know, uh, inspection at site uh, 0.5, you know, and what their hourly charges. And I love that. I say, oh, you only spent a half an hour investigating this serious case. You know, did you take measurements at this inspection? When did you go? Where are your notes? You know, where are the photographs of your measurements? How do we know that what you measured is actually accurate? Did you photograph the tape? Did you draw a diagram while you were there? So get those, get those. Get a tutor. And what I mean by that, and it's also one of the things I love about preparing for expert depositions and just preparing the cases that we work on where we have various experts on liability and damages. Have a tutorial. Before I engage with an expert on a serious catastrophic case, before I question that expert, I reach out to my own expert. Because usually if they have one, you're going to have one. And if they don't, you should get one. Uh, unless you are super, super knowledgeable. Um, you know, my good friend John Bonina, past president, he probably doesn't need to speak to a doctor before he goes and questions a physician on any case because he's practically a doctor himself. So he knows what he's asking. But um, if you don't have that knowledge because you haven't practiced medical malpractice for your entire life, um, then get the medical specialist, retain an orthopedic specialist, retain a physiatrist, retain an anesthesiologist, give them your adverse experts report, the person you're going to question, give them the report, give them the file, say, let's set up a Zoom for an hour, pay them for their time, and they'll sit through and they'll be like, yeah, see where he says or she says this? That's not true. And I can show you how it's not true. Make sure to ask them how they got to this to make that opinion and ask them if they did this measurement or this test. It's amazing how you can learn so much. And most of us, we're always learning. That's what we do as trial attorneys. That's what the good trial attorneys do. They're open to learning new information. So whether it's a subway accident case where you need to have a train operator explain to you how you work and start and do everything, right, Celeste? Or if it's um, a construction accident case where someone uh, needs to teach you how to work the lift and where the, the emergency stop buttons are and how to do it in the user manual or a catastrophic injury case where you're working with an economist to prepare for their economist or a vocational expert or a life care planner. I always set time to review my case with my experts. I always ask them, hey, can you give me some questions? You know, don't go crazy. Just spend an hour looking through and just type up a list of questions of things that you think I should ask. And then they're always happy to do it. I find experts like putting on their lawyer hat and if they're engaged in the process, they enjoy that. That's part of why they are experts. And so I'll incorporate those uh, questions into my outline. And then you create your outline. That's gonna be your foundation, is your outline. That is your bedrock. I used to do all my outlines for everything. Um, for trial, I still pretty much use my yellow pads, um, but for depositions, especially expert depositions, especially with doing them by Zoom now, my method that I found really, really helpful is I do an outline. I have a Word document up, and I'll create headings on the areas that I want to get into, what my goals are. And then I'll do bullet points. I'll do uh, specific questions. If there's a real key thing, I may type it out. Otherwise, just sort of topics and subject headings. Uh, if there's an exhibit that I want to show to the expert, <clears throat> let's say their report or their curriculum vitae, I want to go over with them. I'll mark pre-mark everything, exhibit one, exhibit two. Then I'll create a folder on my computer. So let's say the report is a 10-page PDF. I'll do a subfile 
on my computer that says deposition exhibit, uh, deposition exhibits for expert Smith, uh, toxicologist. And then I'll put exhibit one, I'll label it exhibit one, I'll save a copy of the report in there. I'll label exhibit two, the curriculum detail, I'll put that in there. Same thing with references. I'll label those, put them in that folder. Uh, same thing with um, photographs, any evidence, anything that you want to discuss with them. Then in my outline that I type, I'll say, go to exhibit one, report, and I put it in red. I change the color. All my exhibits I always do in red. So it's color coordinated. And in some cases, I did a deposition of an expert where I had like 35 exhibits. I didn't get through all of them, but that's okay. You could still pre-mark them. And when it's there and you have your computer set up, it's very smooth. You're screen sharing. Let's take a look at your report. I've highlighted this paragraph on page three of what I've marked as plaintiff's exhibit one. And uh, what did you mean by that? And do you have a reference for that? So it's being organized. And when you prepare properly and you organize your exhibits and you organize the sections of your questions, you can move them around later on, but the outline becomes a living, breathing document. You may think of something early in the morning or late at night like I do and get up and just go to your computer and, and add something, type it in, um, change stuff, add stuff, bold, enlarge. I find that that's really helpful. And then, you know, you can you organize it based on what your goals are. You know, what do you want to get out of this expert? If you've read the report and you think that maybe it's an independent medical exam, it's an orthopedic surgeon and there's stuff that helps you. Your goal may not be, you don't want to preclude this expert, you want this expert to help you. So you can have a whole section building this expert up maybe. Oh, and you've done this and you've done that. So you really know what you're looking at when you look at MRIs. This is in your wheelhouse, right, Dr. So-and-so? Yeah, it is. And you don't dispute the finding on this MRI, do you? No, no, I don't. And you certainly didn't give that opinion, right? Right, because it makes sense. Before the accident, there was nothing there. After the accident was there, so it's connected, right? So your goal may be to bolster, to get concessions, to get things that are going to help and support your case. I did that once with a vocational expert where I got them to concede that, you know, my client has a 50% income impairment. And I just walked them down the path of that. And it was great. Um, maybe you think that this expert, based on your research, is just, I don't want to use a derogatory term, but let's just say a regular, um, a regular expert who's always around, who says anything, who's been precluded a lot. Maybe you just want to expose that expert for being that type of expert, you know, expert for hire will say anything without any basis and you want to get them precluded uh, or her precluded. Um, then that should be a big section, uh, you know, where I talked about an expert that was precluded seven times. I came right out of the box in my outline. You ever been precluded from testifying in a case? Well, I think I was limited once, uh, but that's all I remember. Well, how about this case? Do you remember that one? No, I don't remember it. What well, was in this state? And it was this judge. And this was the subject matter. You remember that? Uh, it doesn't sound familiar. And you were precluded by the judge in that case for saying blah, blah, blah. And then you go right through it. So just get organized, have your exhibits ready, um, have your subject headings. Uh, subject headings should always be their qualifications and their background. Go through that mark it as an exhibit ask them is your curriculum vitae up to date do you need to add anything modify anything um ask them about the information they relied upon <clears throat> ask them all the questions that you're curious about don't be shy about asking open questions at trial you want to cross-examine with leading tight questions but in depositions you want to give them free reign to say what they're going to say and then that's it you're locking them in that's one of the goals of an expert deposition look it's rare that you're ever going to leave a deposition where you've questioned an expert and say, oh, 
I hit a home run. I nailed this expert. They confessed to everything. You know, I got everything I wanted. Um, but if you, you are successful, if you lock that expert in, for example, is this the only study that you rely upon that cannabis causes risk taking? Well, I'm sure there's others. Well, I'm not asking about others. I'm asking about, you said you've read these studies. Is this the only one you know about? Well, there may be others. All right, tell me another one. I don't know as I sit here today. Fair to say then, sir, that the only study you relied upon to form the opinions in your report that he was taking risks is this study you cite, right? And then he says, yes. And then you get into the study and show how it means nothing. That way they can't show up at trial later on with a different study. Uh, it doesn't work that way. You, you can preclude them from bringing something in that it was never disclosed and wasn't part of his report and wasn't part of his opinion. And then you make them look silly. Uh, oh, after I grilled you at the deposition, you went back and did some more homework, right? Is that what you did? So find out the basis. You're gonna wanna go through your outline, subject headings, basis of opinions, challenge them on the references. You're gonna wanna do all of that in your outline. Um, Now let's talk a little bit about preparing your expert and then I'll get into conducting the deposition. We have about 15 minutes left before the Q&A. So let's say it's your expert that's going to be questioned. You've retained the expert. It's your biomechanical engineer. You're the defense lawyer. Um, you've retained this expert to say that the impact wasn't significant enough to cause to create the force necessary for these types of injuries. Maybe your biomechanical engineer is a medical degree, maybe not but you need to prepare your expert the same way that you need to prepare all of your witnesses when they're gonna be deposed in any case, especially an expert needs to be prepared. Don't let them say, I got it, I got it. I get questioned all the time, I'm good to go. Say, I appreciate that. I'm sure you're gonna be great. I'm very excited that you're, you're involved in this case, but humor me, there's some things I just wanna go over with you just to make sure we're on the same page, okay? They're like, sure, go ahead, what do you got? I always ask the expert, has anything come up ever at trial, at a deposition that didn't look too good for you? For example, maybe you said something at a deposition once that they keep coming back and throwing in your face. Um, maybe uh, you failed a, a bar exam or a board exam. Um, maybe you got something happened. Anything, you know, I, I need to know now because I don't want to be surprised. As long as you tell me, uh, it's all good and then we can just prepare for how to handle it. Because the worst thing is, is if you're sitting there and your witness is being questioned and uh, you, you're, you're caught by surprise. Have you ever been precluded? Um, what were the circumstances of that? You're a biomechanical engineer. Do you have any medical training? Um, you know, have you been pushed hard at depositions about your lack of medical training? How do you handle that? How do you handle a question that asks how you can opine on whether or not the accident caused this person's injuries? So you want to spend time really working with your expert. You want to go over the types of questions you anticipate. You want to tell them how to navigate questions, especially if there's tough stuff or areas they're not as strong. Um, so it's really important that you do that. For example, um, tell them that, sorry, I'm switching gears on you. I'm looking at my outline. You've heard me talk about the hand, okay? And what I do is I have a little trick that I use when one of my clients or one of my experts is being questioned and I want to object uh, to the question that's being asked and I'll put up the hand. And what I do is I say to them, if you see my hand come up on the Zoom or if we're next to each other in person in front of you, <coughs> 
stop talking. It means I want to make an objection and then wait until you get direction from me. Either answer the question, don't answer it, whatever it is. So tell them about how you like to handle yourself in a deposition. I usually say to an expert, listen, it's pretty much fair game. They can grill you. You're a paid expert. I'm going to let them ask their questions. I don't like to interfere. It just drags it out. But if there's something that I have an issue with, I'm going to put up my hand and you just buckle down. Okay, don't say anything until I give you further um, direction. So have that, have that meeting well in advance. Don't do it the day of. I hate when people prepare for anything uh, on the morning of or the day of. Schedule a time, uh, work with your expert and prepare them. So you're either preparing yourself to question the expert or you're preparing the expert to be questioned, all right? Now, conducting the deposition, let's talk about that for about 10 minutes after I take a sip of some tea. So when you're conducting the deposition, it's important to keep your cool. It's important not to engage with your adversary uh, and have long speaking objections. You need to stay focused on your mission. Your mission is to get the answers to your questions. And you've spent a lot of time preparing, you're ready, you know the material, and you need to work hard because you're gonna have an evasive, uh, likely an evasive witness to make sure they answer your question. Now, before the deposition starts, you may be asked if it's the usual steps. We've all heard that. Usual steps, counsel? Yeah, usual steps. Um, show of hands, how many have actually read the usual steps, right? I see you. I know who, who does and who doesn't. I bet a lot of you do and a lot of you don't. There are different steps in federal court and state court. I've included those in the materials as well from some depositions. In essence, all the usual steps are the same. And there's really two main takeaways from them. The first, is that all objections are preserved for trial, all right? All of them. You don't have to object every single time. The only type of question and objection that is not preserved is an objection to form. God knows what that means. We know what it means. You can't ask two questions in one. You can't say, you know, uh, where were you and what were you wearing, right? It's either where were you or what were you wearing? That's improper form. But that's the only type of objection you can make is to form. Everything else is preserved. All right. Now, except for privilege, obviously, uh, if there's a privilege, if there's an attorney, uh, expert work product privilege, uh, if there's a marital privilege, attorney client privilege. So you can always assert an objection on privilege. But other than that, it's fair game, folks. And it's rare, uh, even with the most seasoned attorneys, that they'll just sit there and let you question. I mean, I had a case once where I was questioning an expert and the defense lawyer objected to every one of my questions i'd ask a question objection speculative argumentative and he'd throw in like five different things objection this that and i turn him i'm like listen we have the usual steps your objections are preserved i will put on the record right now and i'm doing it you are not waiving any objections you don't need to object to every one of my questions okay i'm allowing you to preserve every objection to every question i have at trial all right no i still want to object and because Sometimes they'll do that to try and throw you off your game. And I don't care for that at all. I don't care for that behavior. If there's something appropriate to object to, do it. If not, get into it. And what'll happen is, is that you'll be asking a question and an expert won't answer it. And I'm gonna give you an example, all right? Let's say you have an expert biomechanical engineer who wants to say that the car was going 35 miles an hour at impact and based on that speed, uh, the forces wouldn't be enough to cause the injury. 
but you know there's no evidence in the file that the car was going 35 miles an hour it's not a witness hasn't said it the driver didn't say it there's no event data recorder so you want to highlight that this witness is coming up with nonsense they're speculating about the speed and they can't speculate when it comes to scientific calculations so you'll ask the question and, and dr so-and-so isn't it true um, that you don't know what speed the car was going at at the time of impact. The answer will be, well, actually, I do. You know, it's my opinion that based on this and based on that, they were going 35 miles an hour. I'll say, well, you know, I'm not asking your opinion. I understand you have opinions in this case. I'm asking you if there's any factual data that you are relying upon that says, like you do in your report, that the vehicle was going 35 miles an hour. Well, yeah, it's easy to tell that because you, you look at the brakes, the, the skid marks and the swerving and, uh, you know, and then they'll just go off on tangents and then you don't want to move on from that. You want to get the answer that there's nothing in the file that says 35 miles an hour. And a lot of times what a lot of my adversaries like to do is they say, asked and answered, asked and answered. Smiley, you've asked that 10 times. You may not like the answer, but he's answered it. And I say, I asked it 10 times. I'm going to keep asking it because they're not answering my question. And if you're not going to let them answer the question, we're going to get the judge on the line. So you need to stay focused and you don't want to get taken off track. You have your mission and sometimes they may say something or give a certain answer that pulls you in a different direction. It's all right to follow. You need to, to, to listen to the witness when they give an answer, because sometimes they say something good that you aren't expecting. You can't be have blinders on to your outline. So it's all right to go off the trail and follow that answer and see where you go. But then come back, come back. That's why an outline is important. Come back to your outline and get back on track. Um, so that's really important when you're questioning. It takes a lot of composure, especially if you have multiple defendants. Objection, objection, you can't do this. And, and you just have to keep your head to the grindstone, focus on getting the answers to the questions. Don't engage in argument. You're paying for that. We all pay for these transcripts, a lot of money per page. And if you spend you know, three pages fighting with your adversary when no one you're not going to agree you're just going around and around and hearing yourself speak you're racking up 20 30 40 50 dollars in bills uh from generating pages of argument it's the worst what you say is counsel appreciate you not making speaking objections you've made your objection i'm going to move on so keep things short and tight it's not easy to do it takes a little practice it takes a little confidence especially if you're a younger lawyer but i remember as a young lawyer being thrown into a deposition, you know, it was a medical malpractice case. I had like four different prominent med mal defense lawyers and I was questioning one of the doctors and they were throwing objections to every question and giving me a hard time. And, you know, that's how you learn. That's how you learn. <clears throat> stay on point, stay on point, get your question answered. Okay. It's really important. That's the only thing that you have to worry about. You have this great outline, you're prepared, but, oh, I didn't get to that. Get to it, get to what you need to. And bring the judge's chambers phone number with you chambers and courtroom always 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 whether you're on the plaintiff side or defense side and don't be afraid to use it okay you don't need to get into arguments with your adversary if they're not going to let the witness answer the question or if you think that uh, a lawyer is harassing your client and you want no more of it then say let's get the judge on the line and and don't bluff call the judge they'll make a record they'll make a ruling and you'll continue on um, sometimes you may want to save. You can ask the court reporter to mark certain questions for a ruling, wait for a break, and then you could say to your adversary, listen, I'm going to call the judge now. Do you want to reconsider any of your positions here on, on blocking before we get the judge on the line? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So uh, don't be afraid to call the judge. Have the judge's number. Uh, 
state court, it's kind of tricky, but sometimes you'll get a law secretary who will make a ruling. Federal court, I usually get a judge on the line. They're usually happy to, to do it and resolve it. Um, you want to box the witness in. You want to lock them in to their answer. We spoke of this earlier. That's when you'll know you do, you've done a good job. You've gotten out everything they've relied upon. You've gotten out all of their opinions. So there's no surprises, okay? You want to avoid surprises at trial. And ultimately, if you've gotten the answers to all the questions that you wanted to ask, you've locked that witness into their answers, so there's not going to be any surprises at trial, you've done a great job. And in being prepared, asking the right questions, having the knowledge of what the references say and the subject matter, knowing what you're doing, that's going to earn you a lot of respect from your adversary. I'm always honored when at the end of a deposition, one of my adversaries says, well, you did a pretty good job there. You, you, you knew what you were talking about. I'm like, yeah, well, I prepare a lot. Um, because then your adversary knows maybe you made their witness look bad. They know this witness isn't going to look as good as their report does when the witness has to be called at the time of trial. Then it gives you that leverage when you're negotiating the case. You can say, yeah, you were talking all about how you were going to say this and your expert was going to say that. I don't think they're going to do too well in front of a jury after that deposition and I size that witness up. So you're showing your adversary your level of preparation. You're showing how this witness is going to come out at the time of trial in front of a jury and that you're the prepared type. And if they don't want to resolve the case now or deal with it, this is what they can expect at the time of trial. So there's that element of it also. You always want to be on your game when you're in one of these adversarial situations questioning an important witness. If you are joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code is POD507. That's POD507. Let's do it. Comments, questions. This is a time where there's a little back and forth that we can really talk about issues that you've got going on. Nothing is off table. You can ask anything you want. I'm going to start going through a few of them. Sharon asks, where do we begin to learn a history of cases where the expert testified? So I think I touched on that. You're going to do a Google search, Westlaw, Lexis, New York jury verdict reporter. Uh, and then from there, you go and get transcripts. So those are really the main areas. Um, New York jury verdict reporter is really, really helpful. Uh, and you can get that. I think Westlaw, Lexis has both of those. Also, Lexis has the context part. And, um, and Dig away, keep digging. Because sometimes you get one case and it refers to that witness being in another case. And I love that part. I love the sort of detective work and, and digging things up. It's really helpful. Uh, call the lawyers up that you see involved in the case that are on your side. See if they can share with you. Maybe they did their homework and they have other transcripts, other things that they can share with you, okay? David, hello, you are asking, um, how would I address the cross of an expert who lists on his CV a research article from 30 years ago listing himself as a first named author as the only article on his CV. And then you get the actual article itself. He's not listed. Plus, the authors all deny knowing who he is. I've been told it was inadmissible because the prohibition about admission of extrinsic evidence on cross of ancillary matters. That is a great question. You're going to get that in. I mean, if he's list his curriculum vitae, his credentials are an issue. Any experts qualifications are a legitimate issue to inquire into and so you put them on the stand you say this is your cv it's accurate you've read it i see there's only one one article you published 30 years ago you recall this you were involved in this i'd lay the whole foundation tell us about it this involved this this involved that i have it here and the interesting thing is sir i, I don't see your name anywhere on it i see all these other people 
Um, and uh, I have affidavits from them that you weren't even involved in this. Can you explain that? And then, you know, I would work it out somehow like that. You can definitely work that out some somehow. Same way any witness's credibility is always fair game. Bias, credibility. Um, this goes to, you know, he's trying to bolster your, your, his qualifications. So that's the only thing you've ever published. And that was 30 years ago and your name's not even on it. Um, so you haven't published anything else, but you're an expert on this. <clears throat> okay, Michael, in federal courts, the expert's report must be substantiated um, with medical principles. You had an expert's report stricken and the expert precluded. Good job under Dalbert and Federal Rule 702. They're unable to produce a list of cases. So be cautious defendants and plaintiffs retain a good expert, have a solidly written report in federal practice. Great advice, Michael. And absolutely, in federal court, when you disclose your expert, that's under Rule 26A2. And you have to give a report. You have to give a list of testimony at deposition or trial in the last four years. You have to give the curriculum vitae, and you have to give the fee schedule. So those all have to be part of the disclosure. Um, so picture if you're in state court, like a 3101 disclosure, you're going to have exhibit A report, exhibit B curriculum vitae, exhibit C, the fee schedule, you know, exhibit D, list of testimony, and so on and so forth. So get a good expert, you know, you're spending money, uh, make them, you know, comply with your questions, screen them. Uh, there's plenty of experts to go around out there. You want one that's going to be credible. You just do. All right, John is saying all physicians can comment on causation or lack of causation, even without biomechanical engineering training, correct? Yes. It's interesting. I'm working on a motion to preclude a biomechanical engineer right now. And this particular one doesn't have any medical training and opines on causing the plaintiff's injury. And if you research the case law, uh, at least the federal case law in the Second Circuit, the Eastern District, Northern District, Southern District, and many of the state courts around, um, the body of case law generally, and it's different in some jurisdictions, some jurisdictions will let a, a biomechanical engineer talk about medicine, but I came across a case just the other day, and they said that they were trying to justify the biomechanical engineer talking about injuries. And in that, the argument of the litigant was, listen, a medical doctor doesn't have biomechanical engineer expertise, so they can't opine. And I'm a biomechanical engineer, so I'm the one who's appropriate to opine. And the court shut that down. They said, listen, medical doctors are qualified. Indeed, I think this is a quote, indeed uniquely qualified, close quote, to opine on causation of a medical injury. So that is absolutely in the wheelhouse of a medical expert. And if you are on a plaintiff or defense side and causation is an issue, you must, must, must get a medical doctor to opine on the causation. You're taking a big risk if you're not, and all you're doing is relying on a biomechanical engineer who is not also a physician. There are some out there that have degrees in both, um, but you know, you, you, medical doctors are the ones to opine on causation of a medical injury, plain and simple. Um, thank you, Michael, for your nice comments. Celeste, thank you for participating as always. And um, okay, uh, Dr. Cordero, how are you? Um, can, I'm gonna, we're going to need to move our one-on-one -on -one tomorrow. I'll reach out to you separately by email. Something came up for me. But uh, by the way, for those of you who don't know already, I've been doing one-on-ones with everyone who wants to. Uh, just go to thementoresq.com. It'll pop right up to schedule. We do 30-minute Zooms, no cost. We talk about case values, experts, referrals, 
cars, uh, anything. It's just a half hour to get to know each other and, and talk shop. So please feel free to take me up on it. I've really been enjoying meeting with all of you. Um, can you move the court to be the one who appoints an expert acceptable, acceptable to both parties so that the expert has no bias towards either side? Otherwise, can you provide the opposing party with a list of 10 experts and ask for that party to provide a similar list to you so that both of you can have an expert acceptable, acceptable to both parties? That's really interesting. So the concept, if I understand your question correctly, is, listen, to take away the bias issue, let's both sides agree on one expert to determine something. And we'll agree on it on that expert and, and live by what the expert says. Um, you certainly can do that. Um, I can only recall once that I did something like that. And that was in uh, one of the cases that I've talked about in this series, um, the Matthew Ferber case that where the guide rail pierced through, it broke off, pierced through the car and, and amputated his legs dramatically. Um, we agreed it was a case against the state. We all, even though we had our own metallurgists, uh, they're experts in metals and properties of metals and all of that, we wanted to have the guardrail inspected. Um, both experts agreed that they wanted to send a piece of the guardrail to a lab to have the properties of it evaluated. <clears throat> so we agreed on which lab that we would all use. Um, and so technically that's an expert, they're giving an expert opinion on the properties of the guardrail. And we agreed on who to use. We found in that situation, it's really objective. Both said it was a credible lab um, and we went ahead and did that. So in theory, you can, in practical application, you're not gonna wanna share an expert. You're gonna wanna have your own to look at it from your perspective and to be an advocate for your case, uh, that you can have an advocate for your case and have them being um, calling it as it is, but they can still be an advocate for you. You can't do that if you're sharing. So that's my thoughts on that. Um, Carol, have I seen the recent second department case, Canciani Verstappen shop? Expert was precluded for not including the documents that he reviewed. Interesting, I have not seen that case, um, but that's great news. You know, that's one of the reasons you wanna get the file, you wanna get the disclosure, you wanna get the reports um, because if they don't have anything, I mean, I've done depositions of experts where they show up and they don't have a file. Oh, I don't keep the medical records. I don't keep this. I just have my notes. Well, you don't have a file? No, no, no. I mean, it's just, it looks really bad, not only a deposition, but when they come up to the stand without a piece of paper in front of a jury. Uh, Jim, do I prefer treating physician or separate doctor to be an expert on damages? <clears throat> Great question. I prefer treating physician if the treating physician is well-credentialed and willing to work with us. Um, and it's primarily the main physician doing the treatment. So for example, an orthopedic injury in a catastrophic injury case, let's say it's the surgeon, uh, the orthopedic surgeon that did the spinal fusion, that's treated the client the whole way through from beginning to end, and that surgeon's well-credentialed, well-qualified, and happy to testify, I would love to use that treating physician as my expert. But I have another case um, where there's been multiple treating doctors, uh, lots of surgeries, and they're not all easily accessible, they're in different states, uh, and in that situation, I'm much happier getting my own well-credentialed medical expert to pull all the records together, review them all, summarize the treatment, evaluate my client, and then it's just that one expert I need to deal with at trial. Um, so depending on the situation, uh, it's worked out great both ways. If you get a great treating, go for it. If not, then get your own on board. And as an FYI, if anybody has cases where their clients were treated by uh, orthopedists from hospital for special surgery, 
I think it's still the case that like they do not testify. They will, they're great doctors, they will treat your clients, but they will not testify. So that should be a red flag if your client comes in and they had surgery there, you want to right off the bat start looking for for your own doctor to, you know, to be available to be your expert. Adam, what's up, my friend? Long time classmate from Brooklyn Law School days. Uh, timing wise, in state court, when do you recommend making the motion to preclude a defendant's biomechanical expert in a motor vehicle accident? Um, I recommend doing it as soon as you're ready. That's going to move the dial on getting your case resolved uh, because they're going to sit back and they'll be like, oh, we've got a biomechanical engineer who's going to say this accident didn't even cause the plant's injuries. We're ready to rock and roll. We'll call him, call her to the stand. And, it, you know, but you throw that motion out there and um, then you're going to say, yeah, I know you're relying on that, but I think your expert's going to be precluded. Where are you going to be then? You know, I'm willing to talk now while the motions are pending. So get it out as soon as you're ready. And everybody needs to check their the judge's rules because <clears throat> some judges will have uh, timing on submitting and limiting motions and motions to preclude. So just check uh, on when you can do that. But otherwise, you can go for it. Um, Celeste is saying, in federal court, you usually have a time limit on the expert deposition. How do you handle it when the expert and lawyer are burning up your time with delay tactics? Great question. In a recent deposition I had of a biomechanical engineer, I had questioned this one before, the same exact expert. And I knew he doesn't give straight answers and I knew he's difficult and he wrote like a 65 page report where he opined on everything. And I spent a lot of time preparing and I knew there was no way I was going to get it done. Uh, you're limited to seven hours in federal court. So I asked my adversary to agree to give me two extra hours, nine hours, and they agreed and I got it done. Um, if you don't get that agreement, you're limited to seven hours or even more and they're burning up the time. Then I would make a statement on the record and I'd say, listen, you know, I'm limited. Um, we're getting a lot of extrinsic objections, lengthy delays. Um, and uh, I'd ask that you please try and do better. Otherwise, we're going to have to you know, get the judge on the line. The other thing I always do in federal court when you're limited to time is I ask the court reporter to note the times of all of the breaks so that it's not just the day of the deposition. You start at 10, you go to five. That's not whatever eight, nine hours. You actually, the minute it starts at 10, 11, uh, you write 10, 11. You take a break at 12.05 to 12.15, that's an extra 10 minutes. So you'd be surprised if you're doing a seven hour deposition and you're taking 10 minute breaks uh, every hour, there's your extra hour and change. So I always try and do that as well. Um, Robert's asking, how do I deal with the CSI effect on jurors? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. I know the show CSI and how they like to see in the visuals and all of that, but I don't know specifically what you're asking about, um, whether they think that the expert, you know, is always right because they get into all this mumbo jumbo. That's part of your job of trying to get them precluded. You don't want them to get into the mumbo jumbo <laughs> because that's going to confuse a jury. They're talking all this nonsense. You want to show it for what it is before they get to in a jury. <coughs> Carol's asking, if you want a report, do I ask the expert directly or go through the attorney? So if it's an adverse report, you can't reach out to the expert directly. Um, you can ask the attorney. Uh, but again, if it's state court, they're not obligated to give you a report in New York State. So it depends on the jurisdiction and the law uh, as far as your demand for a report. All right, John, since it's not the norm, when should you consider deposing experts in state court? Um, good question. I think if if the expert is if an expert is disclosed in a serious case and is really coming out of left field with a lot of a lot of things, um, then you make an application to the judge saying, listen, I need to vet this in advance. 
um, it's not fair to us to have to deal with this at the time of trial. Uh, if you really feel that there's items there, generally the law is against you. You have to deal with it at trial uh, when it comes up. The other thing is by making a motion to preclude in New York State under Fry, then they may set a hearing, in which case you're sort of doing a deposition, but you're doing a cross-examination prior to trial without a jury in front of the judge, and that's sort of your bite of the apple. So that's the other way to do it. Um, opinion and experience with expert referral services, William is asking me. Um, I've worked with a lot of expert referral services, and some of them are excellent. Um, you know, if you want to save money, you try and do it through word of mouth in your own research. But most referral services will get you a no cost uh, meeting by phone or Zoom with a potential expert. They'll get you CVs. They can narrow it down and find someone for your specific purpose. So, <clears throat> for example, if you need uh, a radiologist to look at some films, that's probably not that hard to find. You may not need an expert service. But I had a case once um, where our client was a stunt woman and she was killed uh, during the course of a movie. I think it was Deadspin uh, back in the day. And uh, so we got involved in that case and we needed a stunt expert. I don't know any stunt men. <laughs> so we used the service and they located someone top notch who was involved in major blockbuster movies as a stunt coordinator. So depending on what you need, um, yeah, I mean, they'll all work with you and send you curriculum vitae's and you usually only have to pay if you retain them. Um, so I would try using uh, your connections, word of mouth research. And if you can't find someone or you need someone uh, in a specialty area, then go for it. Um, we have sponsors that do experts. The Expert Institute's one of the Academy's sponsors. We've used them a lot. They're great. They found us that stuntman expert. So uh, I would look at that. Okay. Um, Nicholas, do you refer to authoritative medical engineer text in your deposition of an expert? Sure. So for those who don't know what Nicholas is asking about, um, a properly trained expert will say nothing is authoritative um, because then you throw it back at them at trial. If they cite to something, they say it's authoritative. This textbook on toxicology is authoritative. I did that with the toxicologist. I said, this textbook on toxicology you cite in your report, you would agree that that's an authority in the field of toxicology. Oh, yeah, it is. It's on everyone's bookshelves in this. <laughs> we all use it. I said, great. And that's you actually use it in this case. Yeah. I said, well, do you remember this section? And I read him stuff that was really helpful to my case. Um, so I do do that. If you can get someone to acknowledge something's authoritative, that's great, uh, because then you can throw it back in their face if there's something in that document or treatise or text that helps you. Um, have you court reporters that do not charge the per page cost for the computer generated attached digestive terms? Good question. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that, Kevin. I'd have to check into it. I don't know if they charge for those. <laughs> I have to ask my my staff to check. Maybe they shouldn't be and they are. Or maybe they're not. I, I just don't know the answer. Um, Michael's asking if deposition conduct of adverse lawyers is really bad. Do you prefer to call the judge or make a motion? I like to call the judge. And then the and then, you know, if you can get the judge, great. Sometimes the judge will say put it in papers. But then you you put uh, you know, you submit the transcript. And there's good case law out there on being obstructive. And if you can show that they objected, you know, a hundred times, uh, you know, they can get sanctioned for that. So I would do it both ways. I'd get the judge on the phone. If you can't, then you make a motion. Um, and uh, I don't think you have to preserve it. I think you, you have a right to appeal for whatever purpose you want, but usually the remedy for an adverse, uh, an adversary being difficult is sanctions and getting another deposition if they've used up all your time. Val, a uh, question about the NYBD 
Collision Investigation Unit for Fatal Accidents. Okay, I've dealt with that a bit. After waiting six months, I finally got the two-page report, which is a verbatim cut and paste of the police report narrative. No witness statements, no 911 transcripts, no photos. <coughs> Going to have to subpoena these things additionally. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Um, whenever there's a fatality in New York, they have their special collision unit, their AIS, Accident Investigation Service unit. They, they go in and they generally do a big workup photographs, witness statements. It's usually not just a regular MV-104 you're used to seeing. And it does take a really long time. Six months isn't that long, believe it or not. We've waited a lot longer. It could be that they just haven't completed everything. So you wanna ask them, I would call them up and say, is this everything? If not, then get a so ordered subpoena for it. Um, and make sure you do a FOIL request, an official FOIL request. I think you can do that online, make sure you get everything. Larry, um, in New York State, can I demand the expert invoice prior to trial as a separate DNI to the expert demand? If I did not include the invoice in the original demand, sure, why not? Demand anything you want. Um, and then if you don't have it before trial, tell the judge you served a notice, you served a subpoena. You can definitely do that. Uh, demand everything from the file. Carol, back to Canciani, if I'm pronouncing that, pronouncing that right, the case. It was a summary judgment motion where the meteorologist report was filed without any of the underlying documents he relied upon. Yeah, again, that's speculation. So that's what's going to happen there. You know, there's good case law that, um, you know, experts can't speculate. They have to have a basis for their opinions. Anthony, do you think an expert's past with defense firms hits home with juries? Yeah, I do. I certainly do. I, many of you know the Amador case I talked about in my first series last year, uh, the one out in Queens, our clients on a motorcycle and collided. And I think in one of the materials, I had my um, cross-examination of the defense uh, accident reconstruction expert. And, you know, it was one of these examples where the report read really nicely. Uh, we did get a report disclosed uh, prior to trial in state court. And, um, and I showed him out to be making opinions without taking any measurements, without doing this, without doing that, charging a ton of money. And then I say, but you claim to be, you're not biased, are you at all? No. And then I show that he worked for the same firm before, that all he does is defense work, that, you know, and yeah, jurors are hip. And what I like to do, uh, we'll talk about trial uh, at the end, but in my opening statements, I like to give a heads up to the jury when I know there's things like that. And they say something like, pay attention to the defendant's expert who I think they're going to call at the time of trial. See if you think he's really objective, because I plan on asking questions to show that I don't think he's being straight with you. I don't think any of these witnesses are being straight with you, because that's ultimately what the jury wants. If they feel someone's not being straight with them, then that witness in that side is dead. You have credibility is huge. So I definitely do that. Can a biomechanical testify if they're an engineer, but not a doctor? Again, we've talked about this. They can, they can talk about forces, but the general body of case law is that they cannot say that a specific force did or did not cause a plaintiff's specific injuries. Depending on the court and the case law, some will let them talk about injuries in general. You would expect these type, you wouldn't expect these type to a person but they can't specifically opine on causation unless they're a medical doctor of a plaintiff's specific injuries. Mark, just want to mention good preparation for expert depositions is not just for trial purpose, but can be critical in a summary judgment motion, mostly from a defense perspective. Thank you, Mark. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if you are on the defense side and the plaintiff's expert is talking a lot of nonsense <clears throat> and uh, you move to preclude them or take them down in a deposition, uh, that helps with summary judgment, for sure. You always want to do that. Um, thank you, Roger. Um, thank you, Suzanne. Alex, 
Um, suppose an expert tended to make a certain opinion previously in a different case, but now has taken a 180 degree turn from that opinion. How would you deal with an expert opinion who says that the science has changed since then? That's great. I'd love if that happens. That's one of the reasons you want to go through and find these prior cases, because if they say, for example, that, um, uh, you know, uh, an impact, a motor vehicle rear end impact has to be at least 50 miles an hour to cause any significant trauma to the spine, right? And you have them at that in a prior case. And then they come in your case and they say that um, your client's case, they were hit at 25 miles an hour um, and that was significant enough to cause injury to the spine, right? Um, then you have two different positions and then you, you call them out on it. Say you, you lock them in, in the deposition saying, I know it's in your report, you say 25 and you say that's sufficient. Uh, it doesn't need to be more than that, even at 25. Yes, yes, yes. And you've always held this opinion. They don't know where you're going with it. And they say, but you testified in this case that it was 50 miles an hour. And then if they want to say, well, the science has changed. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, then you say, all right, point me to where the science has changed. How the force has changed. Uh, you know, do grits grow, uh, boil differently on your stove than anybody else's? You know, my cousin Vinny, it's like, what's what's your basis for that? Uh, that's all this speculation that we try and keep out of the courts from experts. That's why the judge's gatekeeping role is that they can't just say stuff. They have to support it somehow. So if an expert ever comes up with something, your question should always be, what's your basis for that? What are you referring to? And usually they're, they're only out as well. It's my experience. Say, all right, so it's your experience. So you just want us to take your word for it as opposed to you identifying any studies, articles, textbooks that support what you want us to take your word for. Is that right? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, that's that's how you handle that. Um, John, thank you. I, I plan to feel better, I hope. Uh, Nick, what do you do? The expert claims here she can't remember how often he testifies. You know, that's a credibility thing. A lot of people who reached out to me, friends and family, I think after Marjorie Taylor Greene was questioned in, in Congress and she didn't remember anything. Um, conveniently. So that's the same thing. If they don't remember and they don't know, it's your job to show how how non-credible that is. So in the case I talked about where I had an expert precluded seven times and he says, yeah, I don't remember that. No, I don't remember that. Like you're precluded so much that you don't even remember it. You know, anybody else, would, that would make a difference. So you just go down the trail. They don't think you throw it in their face. Oh, you don't remember that? How about this case? And you show it to them. How about this case? How about this one where the judge said, you are speculating, you are assuming, your testimony is inadmissible. Do you remember that? Oh, you don't remember that. Okay, well, let's go on to this case. Any others? So that's the best way to handle that. Um, will there be a survey for the podcast? Yeah, if anyone listens to my CLEs on my podcast, uh, you can get on Apple Podcasts, Google, Libsyn. Um, so if you listen to one of my podcasts, that's a CLE like this, and this will go up there usually in about a week and a half is the delay from when I do them here. Uh, you can get credit from that. Uh, Michelle's kind enough to record codes, and then there's a link in the description, and you fill in the codes, and then you'll get emailed credit. Um, Ashley, any experience filing suit against your expert for professional malpractice? I haven't. That would be very unfortunate. Um, that would be unfortunate indeed if your expert screws your case up so badly that you end up having to sue them. Fortunately, I have not, but that goes to show you need to vet your experts, find someone who's worked with them, find someone who's put them on the stand before, they've done well in front of a jury, they're good to work with, they're credible. You don't wanna be in a situation where your expert does something that really uh, negatively impairs your case. 
Um, Alex, from some cases I've seen experts would say they have X thousands of cases over my career. I've read this many MRIs. How often do you use that to impeach an expert and how effective do you think it is? I like the old school way. Most of you know I grew up in the old school with my dad and uh, his colleagues and before computers and emails and all that were used. And the old school way is you print out the jury verdict reporter for that witness that's usually, you know, like a foot thick and you hold it up. Say, hmm, I'm looking through all these. You testified here, you testified there. All these cases you've testified in. It's it's nice to give a visual to a jury. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes though it's not a big deal. I mean, a radiologist that's been practicing for 30 or 40 years, maybe they started when they were 30 and now they're 60, still in the prime of working. So 30 years, if they're reviewing, you know, five to 10 MRIs a day, it is going to be thousands. And then that's not anything that shocks the senses. So you have to you have to pick and choose what you think is going to be effective. If it's part of their job, yeah. I mean, I've probably questioned thousands of witnesses in my career. It doesn't mean that I'm not credible at what I do. It's just that's what we do, right? So there's a difference between um, you know someone that that's legitimately part of what they do and that's a bolster to their expertise, as opposed to someone who's an expert witness who's testified you know thousands of times. So I'm going to thank you all. I'm going to hand it off to Michael to wrap it up. Uh, come see me on June 1st. We'll talk mediation settlement. That's the good stuff. That's getting resolution. That's what we want to do from both sides. It's important. That's, that's what we always want to do. Resolution in these cases. Okay? And thank you all for joining me.